Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me in the great state of Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Hello. And up in New Jersey, we have Mike Lentine in his office trying to avoid uh, giving us too much noise from the stupid air conditioner. <laughs> Hello, and yes, that's all true. It's 97 blistering degrees here, so gross. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's 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 fine. It's 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 a manageable noise now. People on the uh on the podcast may not actually hear it because I may be able to remove it, but we'll, we'll see not, if that happens. Now they'll all be listening uh, for it because we mentioned it though. So. Yeah, right. If we just been quiet, <laughs> no one would know. <laughs> um, Thanks, so George. In other news, what? Go ahead, George. Uh. In other news, I we were talking er, before the podcast that I just got my financial aid reward for Wisconsin, so I'm uh, one step closer. But I'm gonna have to find an apartment there and all sorts of stuff. By the time you get this podcast, I may have had have more stuff sorted out. But you know, at the moment, I have a financial aid reward that covers my tuition, uh, and I need to figure out how to where to live and how to pay for living so that's going to be an adventure adventures all right so william i've listened to you do this intro so many times and you know the podcast about constructed languages and the people who invent them and we've never done an episode like what are conlanger's favorite mixed drinks (laughs) what do conlangers like for breakfast the person behind yeah, the timeline. Right? It's not really about the people who create them that much. I mean, sometimes <laughs> we, we bring people on and we let them talk. But just to, in some sense, I wonder what we would talk about. I mean, the guy who invented Bliss Symbolics, okay, he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think, so the original tagline for the show was uh, a, the podcast by Constructed Languages. Or I, I, I guess I could say a podcast by Constructed Languages. But that seemed too short for me. Okay. So I just like added that people who create them just out of the blue. Uh, we should but, get Con yeah, Langers just... to send us a list of their favorite albums or music to invent languages to. <laughs> do you have a set like yes. mixtape or well, I guess not mixtape anymore, but um, <laughs> do you have like a set playlist like Con Lang music? Like, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I'm asking about. I, I don't know. Oh. I don't. I, I could be listening to anything, but I use you know, my, people my might... study my study playlist, which is all instrumental music. That Ooh. helps because obviously, when you're conlanging, if you have linguistic input while you're trying to do grammar, I mean, I have done conlanging while listening to podcasts, but it seems it's a little weird to do. Why um, does all of my language sound like a Turkish pop singer? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just call this language Tarkon and be done with it. <laughs> okay. But anyway. we have been 
digressing far enough, why don't we actually get into our main topic, guys? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we are talking today about a very interesting episode, a very interesting topic. We've touched on this many, many times because it affects so many things in grammar, but it kind of deserves its own episode, mainly because we don't see much of this in... I don't think we see a lot of this um, coming to the fore in conlangs, and I think it's because, um, like, English doesn't do this much. Well, it, it but, does um, it, but not in ways most of us are, have been made sensitive to, so... Yeah. Not not in very obvious ways, but right. we're talking about animacy and agency. Now, William, why don't you define these terms for us? Because, I mean, I think we everybody will who's been listening to the podcast will know what animacy is, but just in case... Uh, it's it's actually kind of weird. So we'll, we yes. all hear about animacy hierarchies, but really it's sort of both animacy and agency and some metaphorical extensions all glommed into one continuum. Yes. So the, the, the meaning of the word is stretched quite a lot. Um, so, I mean, the, my favorite example, of course, is always the, the Navajo animacy hierarchy, which has people in lightning at the top mm -hmm. and, you know, non-physical abstractions at the bottom. Um, and that sort of makes sense, right? People are animate, you know, the conception of justice is not animate. <laughs> um, but the range of things in between that is quite complex, such that, you know, a moving body of water counts as more animate than a stick. <laughs> yes. I think... Neither of those things are animate, strictly speaking, but the, the addition yeah. of motion is taken as a metaphorical extension of animacy and more to the point agency, right? So in philosophical terms, agency is the power of an entity to accomplish things that it wants to accomplish. Yeah. I think we can kind of say um, for both of them, animacy is sort of very abstractly the amount of control something has over its own destiny, which is uh, really complicated. Well, that, that, I mean, that's sort of a philosophical definition. Um, and that's true. So you've got animacy and agency bundled together in what linguists call an animacy hierarchy. Um, I, I ran across one paper where somebody called it the empathy hierarchy, which in some ways does a better job because very often your pronouns fit into your animacy hierarchies as well. Oh, okay. So, um, um, by the way, you're being really heavily downsampled. But anyway... Uh, um, I'm hearing that and Mike has gone offline, so we're having some Skype problems. Okay. No, 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 I'm here. Okay, weird. No, I mean, yeah, I was just typing that, actually. I was going to say the audio quality just plummeted, but I didn't know if uh, that was just me. I'm hardwired in, so it's not my wireless or anything. No, I think it's yeah. Skype. Oh, you're coming back. Okay, it's improved. Anyway, I mean... All right, so we can edit, edit that out. out. Um, anyway, so the empathy hierarchy, so you can get your pronouns involved, and then, you know, human nouns, and then non-human but living animal nouns, and then way at the See, up, I always know, thought that pronouns fit more into an agency hierarchy and that kind of throws everything for a loop because the the animacy hierarchy and the agency hierarchy are mixed up now the agency i think up. i think what what i would think of the agency is the thing that's most likely to be 
a transitive subject. Right. Yeah. Right. That's very often true. And that's why calling it an animacy hierarchy always freaks me out a little bit, because very often human infants count as lower <laughs> on the scale than adults. I'm like, but they're still animate, right? But then when you think about ad agency, that starts to make a little bit more sense and is a bit less alarming. Yeah, they're well, they're not. They're human infants uh it's depends on what age they are when they're when they're newborns they 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 don't ha really have that much more than autonomic reactions right <laughs> yeah um, yeah they're, they're not doing much for themselves anyway so the point is that we can call this an animacy hierarchy or an agency hierarchy or an empathy hierarchy the point is once you've got one a whole bunch of things that kind of intuitively seem quite different mm-hmm on one level, but sort of metaphorically all come together. Um, and that's very common. So I just wanted to make that point before we move okay. on and talk about some of these hierarchies. Okay. So let's, let's actually, now that we've thoroughly confused our audience, let's, let's, uh, go further into talking about how these hierarchies work. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I guess t two sort of refinements I'd like to add before we do that is in, a good number of languages, nouns for human beings operate slightly differently than the names of human beings. Oh. Name, named individuals, Bob, is typically going to be slightly higher up the hierarchy scale than the man. Now, so that's you, useful to keep in mind. When you're talking about how these compare in terms of a hierarchy, or in terms of an animacy rating, so to speak, um, is this by comparing them in certain across languages and seeing how it how they stack against each other across the spectrum? Like, how do you compare the animacy of the man versus Bob? In some sense, that's language-specific. I mean, not all languages make this distinction in their grammar. Mm -hmm. um, in, you can, you can make the claim that in some Australian languages, something very much like this animacy hierarchy determines your verb alignment. Oh, okay. And in some languages... Nouns for people behave differently than proper names for people. This makes sense, actually, from like a cognitive standpoint. Because I think it you, does. Yeah, when you stick a name on somebody, that it's um, I guess it's less abstract than referring to somebody by a generic word, right? It's right, it's, and and it's 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 also mentions how topicality gets involved in this as well. Somebody whose name you're mentioning is more topical, more, um, what's the word? They're more identified. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. Yeah, that gonna uh, be I mean, think of standard sort of storytelling. In most fiction, uh, the named characters are more important to the story than any unnamed uh, individual that, that happens to be in the scene. The storekeeper. We don't care much about necessarily. Yeah. But right, that's Bob the Innkeep, we know, yeah, yeah, has yeah. some importance. Yeah. Um and then the last thing I want to mention is that there are lots of languages in the world that only have what gets called animacy and inanimacy as grammatical gender. And it's important to know that grammatical animacy that acts like gender is probably going to act differently than semantic animacy, which is mostly what we're talking about here. So my favorite example that I always bring for that is in the Blackfoot language, only a semantic animate can be the subject of a transitive verb. You cannot ever say 
the knife cut the bread. You have to say someone cut the bread with the knife. Oh, so grammatically it's it's not possible to do, eh? It is a badly formed sentence if you make an inanimate object the subject of a transitive verb. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. So, I like that idea. <laughs> so how do they do, like, um... Well, I guess like things like it's raining, they might just do it like that, something similar where rain is not, wouldn't say rain it's, is it's falling. It's intransitive. An intransitive yeah. verb, we don't run into this problem. Huh. So, That's so, interesting. So the, the to, to, not to be political, <laughs> but the, the ubiquitous phrase, guns don't people, people t- kill people, in, in Blackfoot, you can't even say guns kill people. Nope. You always <laughs> have to say someone killed someone with a gun. Yeah. I mean, there's other hanky-panky that Blackfoot verbs do where things that are formally intransitive in, would be considered transitive by most people's standards. So, I mean, we don't need to get into that. I just want to point out we're talking about semantic animacy for the rest of the show. We're not talking about a, a gender system where, and, I mean, yeah, where I, things might makes... more or less fit semantically, but often do not perfectly. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think you, you said in our uh, gender show that sometimes semantic and inanimates gain animate gender in in those languages yes by but virtue that, usually by virtue of being culturally important yeah but that wouldn't affect their place on the, the hierarchy that makes nope. sense and yep. i think that it's important to do that because for one thing your animacy hierarchy is not animate inanimate your nope. animacy uh and especially if you expand it to the agency hierarchy um, actually, this is a point that you have on your notes, William. Uh, you have, I think it's very often like first person pronoun, second person pronoun, third person pronoun in an agency hierarchy. And then it goes into like adult humans or, uh, children, animals. It de- varies from language to language. Yeah. But. Generally, you have adult humans at the top, sometimes adult male humans. Mm-hmm. So it, and, and it's not a binary thing. It's, it's, you know, humans, animals, plants, or all sorts of things. Well, let's, yeah. let's use, let's use this to segue into this list of things I have that are sensitive to NMC hierarchies. One of the mm-hmm. first ones that I ran across in researching the show, and which I hadn't appreciated before, mm-hmm. is that where your language will permit plurals. I mean, some languages are happy to pluralize everything. But Bernard Comrie, whose name shows up everywhere, he's a grand old linguist, um, in 1981 came up with a, a, a paper on the plural marking hierarchy. And it goes speaker, so first person pronoun, speech act participant, so that's a, a second or third person pronoun, human, uh-huh. animal, individual object, like a tree, mass, you know, like a uh, sand, a place, and then abstract entities. Hmm. So the okay. idea is if you have a plural form for animals, then you expect plural forms for humans, speech, act, you know, and pronouns, but not necessarily anything further down, right? If you have a plural for places, then you're going to have a plural for everything except abstract entities, possibly. Okay. Right. So... This is just one example of how things might be split from language to language. The nature of that split and how detailed it is may be different. Huh. Hmm. 
you both seem surprised by this. Well, I'm just thinking about, um, I'm trying to figure out where English lies in it. Um, for the abs- we definitely have like, for place, would that be like, um, like museum? But that's even could be a, a thing, right? Like an individual, like it's a, like a, like a building, you know? Or a city. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, yeah, in English would be weird if I said like, I went over to Bo- the Bostons or the Arnhem. Right. Right. But then for abstract, yeah. abstract entities in English, um, he came to know all the happinesses of being a parent. I don't know if that, that sounds weird to me. Um, yes, but it's permitted in English because we sometimes talk about methods. Mm-hmm. You know, methods. Uh-huh. Some, some words are, I mean, a method is not quite an abstraction. Um, certainly certain kinds of culture theory, um, academics will talk about all sorts of, they'll pluralize everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think it makes sense that sort of abstract entities get on the last place in the list because, I mean, how many times do you really talk about though more than one abstract entity that's that's the same kind of thing? Right. It's not something that comes up in in uh, in conversation, and also unless you're hanging place... out in the English department of a man at the average American college. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, all this makes sense to me. Um, especially, you know, you have, at the top of the list, you have speaker and then speech act participant. The speak, speech act participant, that makes a lot of sense to me, and it makes, and, uh, it, it, uh, it's pointed out in that English has lost the plural U form, and now, and now, basically, like, almost any English dialect you you find is trying to f- to create one, a a plural u out of something because it's so it for some reason that's important to us oh, to yeah. uh sure. know if you're talking to one or many people y'all mm-hmm. you guys so on and so forth yeah youns yeah youns right youns <laughs> here, here it's y'all y'all right i usually say you guys and uh, it was funny when I was teaching in Taiwan, the kids actually started picking that up. They're like, you guys. That's cute. <laughs> Sound like little Jersey kids. Sound uh, that's good. That's good. But anyway, anyway so, um, um, and, and I want to say again, this hierarchy I gave can be broken. So, for example, in classical Nahuatl, humans and animals are typically the only thing that get plurals. But then a few other things like the word for star, okay. you know, for some reason, celestial objects get promoted. Or some celestial yeah. objects get promoted, and and you know there are various ways that might happen. So people, I mean, I whatever I say, human in these hierarchies, depending on your culture, that will probably include gods and spirits and demons and all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gods and spirits um, generally end up in a human class. They're yeah. generally not considered like anything more than human, and that may. That may have uh, some implication on how we really actually perceive what, uh, or how we actually construct our our gods and spirits and everything in in religion or something. But I don't really want to get into that. But anyway, <laughs> but, you know, I'm well, sure also, some conlanger will. Also, I mean, going <laughs> the other direction, I'm sure we the gods and spirits are considered humans, and also, you know. Um, like not to be morbid, but when someone has passed away, you don't refer to them as it. You know, right. all of a sudden they don't become an object. It's like, oh, where do you want me to put it? Oh, 
you know, it's just it's that it stays in that human zone, regardless of whether it's a, you know, actually yeah. a living human being. Right. That, right. That's that's an interesting thing, because <laughs> you would think like a corpse would lose animacy. Well, a corpse does, but the person that that yeah. corpse used to be is still. But yeah, but I mean, animate. that's that's true. You when you talk about the person, then then it's more it's animate. If you talk now, about the object of the corpse, I think you can use it sometimes. Yeah. I'm um, going back to what you were talking about with um named with um proper nouns having more animacy than common nouns. Might that be a little bit in English where if we're talking about a pet that we have, we refer to it more as he he or she, but if it's just an animal, we we typically it's less uh agentified, I suppose, or less animate. Uh, you know, honestly, I don't know if that's linguistic pressure or just a change in how Americans in particular interact with their pets. Hmm. Yeah, well, it, it depends. Um, other cultures do this, too. Um, you had a note about Spanish, Mike, but I know yeah. that in Spanish, uh, for pets, you can break the grammatical gender of the, the animal. So, like, uh, cat, gato, defaults to masculine. Mm-hmm. However, if you have a female cat, a lot of people who have a female cat call it a gatita. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> even if it's male, even if it's a male cat. No, if it, if it's okay. a female cat. Ah. Uh, and the same goes for uh, dogs. It, <laughs> probably any anything that you keep as a pet, you can you can unless it's like something that is difficult to tell the gender of. Like yeah. you know, I I think probably. For animals, mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with um, with uh, how important the gender of it is to you, and how much you can really tell what the 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 gender of it is. Because, like, obviously, there's separate terms for bull and uh, cow in Spanish as as it is in English. There's you have the 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 gendered uh, dog and cat, but I've never heard anybody say uh, Mosco instead of Mosca. That that's a uh, fly, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, bugs <laughs> have incredibly low agency in yeah. every culture that I'm aware of. So again, this, yeah, this makes sense. That, that, I mean, we, I don't want to get be pretty low. too hung yeah. up on pets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, let's let, let's let's actually move on. That was just a little yeah. side note. Um. So we kind of touched on that. We did pluralization and. Uh, yeah, we I mentioned pronouns, and we touched on pronouns a bit. So. Right, so intensives. This was the one that surprised me to discover. So intensives, uh, um, in most of the languages most of us will be familiar with, we just use reflexive pronouns. I myself said so. Bob himself yeah. punched the senator. Or Bob punched the senator himself, right? Yes. That sort of intensive marking. Mm-hmm. It turns out this is sensitive to animacy. Yeah, and, I, <laughs> and I have a nice paper relating to this that I can link into the show notes. My favorite is Basque. Oh, okay. Which has a separate intensive marking for first and second person pronouns, and then third person pronouns all the way up to um, inanimate abstractions have a different way of marking intensive. Huh. Well, it'd be weird if you said in English like the book itself fell off the table. Like that's like <laughs> that's a little bit weird. Yeah. But I mean, you can still think of a situation where you you know. It almost raises the book to like a like a like an animate entity in my mind, like it was like it was uh, enchanted. As a, or as, as a subject, it does, but you could use it as an object. Yeah, you know, I mean, he, uh, he, he he hit the author with the book itself. You know, things like that. 
that. Okay. Yeah. I think as a subject, it the reflexive seems to imply that something actually has control over its actions. I don't mm-hmm. know. Right. Anyway, um, and there are one, two, three, four. There are six layers of distinction that one paper found between first and second person pronoun, third person pronoun, human, animate, concrete inanimate, abstract inanimate. Hmm. So um, Japanese has jishin for all animates and pronouns and jitai for inanimates of all sorts. German has zelpst for everything, but has no way to do a um, intensive for abstractions. And of course, Spanish uses mismo, misma for everything. Yeah. Um, from I, first person think... pronoun up to abstraction. So there's a lot of possibility there for some uh, a, a, an animacy hierarchy I had never heard of until a few weeks ago. And uh, actually, that um, reflexive thing, I mean, mm-hmm. it's probably more common in European languages than other places, but I nope. think I've heard nope. that. Yeah, I think I've heard that usage, kind of usage in uh, Chinese. Right. Right, right. So, it, it turns out that um, reflexive pronouns are used for intensives in about half the world's languages. Yeah, so it's not. It's more common yeah. than you might think. It's not yeah, just it's European. Not, it's it's not some weird European thing. I I, I take back what the 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 caveat that I said. For yep. but it is huh. pretty common. So yep. I was surprised to learn that myself. Hmm. So don't be afraid of using that. It yep. happens all the time. Um, another thing that might be sensitive to animacy is passivization. Mm-hmm. So especially the the dynamic um, get passive in English is far more common with high animacy patients. And even our normal, and even our normal passive somewhat has this tendency. Mm-hmm. And this makes sense. If we remember that these, these animacy and agency hierarchies are often related to topicality, what do we think is most important is usually people, animals, things are usually yeah. most important to us. So the English passive is just a way to keep at the forefront of our attention and the forefront of the sentence. Things that we're most interested in. The man walked into the barn and got kicked by a horse. <laughs> right? We use a passive in the second clause because we care most about the man who we've introduced in the first clause. Um, yes. So, right. I mean, some languages are very strict about who can be, and as we talked about before, what can be the subject of a transitive verb may well, be quite restrained. And the passive is, is working on the same principle. Now, without yeah. venturing too far into passives, um, if you say, but if there are two um, inanimate objects, I presume of equal uh, animacy, like the car was hit by the tree, like right. you're talking about. Um, I think then it's that... topicality. Then it's topicality. Okay. So the car was I hit mean, by the tree. Yeah, that would be surprising, and would. Yeah. Did the tree fall down? Sure. Yes, like there was a great storm, and the branch fell, and the tree was hit by the branch, or the tree was hit by the car, or the okay. car was hit by the tree. Anyway, okay. I mean, okay. When, okay. when you have items that are that fall into the same slot. Mm-hmm. In an animacy hierarchy, funkiness can happen. <laughs> For example, again, Navajo does word order according to animacy. So, you know, the the man kicked the horse and the horse kicked the man will always have the same word order. It will always be man, horse, kicked. And you will alter the marking on the verb to make clear who's doing what to whom. Mm. <laughs> um if you have things of the same animacy, like the man kicked the other man, 
then either word order becomes possible and it, it, it defaults to topicality. On the wiki, there it mentions uh, Navajo, and it has a nice little uh, hierarchy there, and it uh, explains the difference. I think I'm not the uh, the prefix yi and then b. Right, yi and bi. Yi oh, yeah, bi alternation. Many dissertations have been written on this. Yeah, the the hierarchy there. It's interesting. It has a uh, human, then infant slash big animal, then medium sized animal, then small animal, then natural force, then abstraction. Yep. Hmm. And that's somewhat simplified. That's somewhat simplified. <laughs> Elderly Navajo distinguish eight levels. Well, obviously it's simple. I mean, even a baby can understand it, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, the five or six level system you described is a simplification of the actual um, mm. system as used by older people, but it is it is decaying as the language becomes less used. And, um, yeah, that's, yeah it, t- it shows an example there of, one, of a sentence that sounds wrong to most Navajo speakers because they put they say the the bird pecked the girl, and they put bird first, and then they have girl, and then they have you pecked. Right. And uh, they say it sounds wrong to most Navajo right. speakers. Correct. Right. Interesting. Um, another place where word order might come into play is in Sesotho as a language in Africa. In ditransitive verbs, you know, like give, mm-hmm. the higher animacy object, whether it's the direct object or the indirect object, must always come immediately after the verb. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess usually inanimate objects don't aren't in, aren't in, in uh, indirect objects. Correct. Exactly. Like. <laughs> and this is this is this is, right. This sort of thing makes sense, and then it becomes grammaticalized. Um, I made the same decision in Kachtai that in ditransitives, the highest animacy thing must always be the core argument of the verb. Right. I do polypersonal agreement in Kachtai, mm-hmm. so subject and um, like a boring transitive verb like kick. Subject, object, verb, all glommed together in one nice morphological pile. Um, <laughs> in a verb like give, the person is always going to be the highest animacy. And so effectively, the indirect object becomes incorporated into the, the verb. Uh, and this sort of thing happens in more languages than just Sosotho and my invented language. Yeah, well, I mean, it's we're giving examples here, but these are all things that you can you can uh, pull into your own language because of... And develop. Yeah. Yeah, and hmm. put your own spin on it, too. Yep. I think um, this is something that, like, I've thought about doing this, but I didn't necessarily tie it to animacy in my head. I just thought, oh, this feels feels like something that could happen. Right. And uh, you just evolve it from there. Right. Um, well, the decision the, next... the decision I made on Kakutai was entirely based on vague sensations I got, you know, from things like knowing about how Blackfoot transitive verbs work. It just seemed better that the thing I care most about, which is most likely to be higher animacy should always be a core argument of the verb. Mm-hmm. And only last, this week did I learn about Sosotho ditransitive mm. syntax. So a lot of these things often will make sort of an intuitive sense to us. Yeah. Um, that's an actually a very good um, point, William, in uh, to say we've kind of danced around saying this for as far as the episode has gone on, but one of the reasons that these animacy hierarchies exist is things that are higher on the animacy hierarchy are more likely to be things that people talk about and care about. People talk a lot more about other human beings than they do about rocks, unless they're geologists. (laughs) Or dwarves. Or dwarves, right. Yes. Right. Um... And then that's what I said earlier, you know, things that are culturally important might get notched up a level or two in their animacy. 
Hmm. Um, um, all right. So another. Say, go ahead, George. Yeah, I want to say. Yeah, the net. The, uh, I was just going to get to the next thing that you have on your list is in English. Our syntax for possessives actually um, changes based on animacy. That's an interesting thing to me. Mm. What is it? It's animates are more likely to have uh, apostrophe s aesthetic, right? Well, I, I put a link or uh, a little snippet from the Wikipedia on there to, and down below a little bit. Yeah, the higher animacy um, the re- the possessor is, the less preferable it is to use of. Yeah. Yeah. Right. My mm-hmm. face. Yeah. My face versus the face of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> you actually, like, um, in Mike's note, he has that, the face of me marked as ungrammatical because I don't think it seems like it could work, but you, you no one ever says that. Right. But it sounds, I mean, if you use the phrase in a petulant voice, you're not the boss of me. Or the song, there's um, a song, you you got the best of me? Well, that, yeah. well that's different. That The best of is a... Is a oh, it's a, a phrasal. A, a, a pretty good right. so, I mean, um, you're not the boss of me takes some of its humor from the fact that it sounds like something a child would say. Yeah, it's, hmm. it's in fact, in fact, it is, it, you, you could say it's sort of grammatical because of those edge case examples, but it's highly, highly marked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You, you all, you wouldn't. Uh, under normal circumstances, you do not use a a of with a personal pronoun, personal. Right. and you usually do not use apostrophe s with an animate with um definitely not with a human referent. Isn't that called um, like the Saxon genitive or the Saxon possessive or something like that? I don't know. Maybe. Saxon possessive. Um, that's it. Called the Saxon well, it's it's derived from uh, the genitive suffix uh, s, mm-hmm. but cliticized uh, and and reduced. Yeah. Um. And then the the other examples from the wiki are the man's face versus the face of the man, with the former one slightly preferred. And then the last example is the clock's face and the face of the clock. And this one, the the second one is is slightly preferred. Mm-hmm. Again. We can always concoct examples where the clock's face sounds okay, but in general, people do not spontaneously produce sentences or phrases like that, for the most yeah. part. And, 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 and it's exactly these sorts of mistakes that foreign speakers of English make that sort of can characterize the language, right? They may never have been told this or mm-hmm. taught some of these things. Or yeah. for some... Um, mm-hmm. you, should, you should say that um, talking about things being preferred that's an important distinction to make, I think. I think a lot of conlangers, when they make their language, they make their rules kind of rigid. <laughs> and yeah. in many cases in natural languages, it's one, one construction is more common than the other. Right. A lot of times, there like, you be, could say that, but. Uh... Yeah, there might be edge cases where you use an alternate construction specifically to create sort of a marked sentence, you know, in poetry or something else. Yeah. Yeah. We have, it's always fun in the not V speaking community in that Mm -hmm. some people become very upset when they don't get very strict rules from on high. There are a number of grammatical constructions where Fromer says, okay, well this one's the most common and this one you can use about half the time, but this one's really kind of weird. 
Doorbell. Yeah, doorbell. We'll just ignore that. Um, but but the point is, I, I think you're right. A lot of people, especially language inventors, we we like things to be tidy. All have the little boxes. <laughs> e- even if we're aiming at naturalism, we might we might push towards tidiness and. And it's it's partly uh, um, partly an artifact of this being a constructed language of, of these being languages that people sat down and created rather than naturally evolved. So right. people right. just sort of made the rules and they didn't think about you know what if what if this gradually developed this way then one of them might actually sort of survive in edge cases. You know. Well, I think um, also. Um, I mean, when you're creating something, it's a lot easier to, to follow the rules than to be, than to, you know, go the other direction and have, has it, well, maybe just go with the flow. And then it's like, well, what ties them all together? You have to go through and find what your inner grammar is at that point. So following yeah. the rules and having it very clear is easier. I, I think that's probably true too. Mm-hmm. Um, back to the topic at hand. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Um, uh, not a huge number of human languages, but it's still not rare. Have optional case marking. Yeah. Okay. And it's much more likely to have um, the case marking actually used when the agent is of lower animacy than the patient. And this, once again, makes sense. We expect things with high agency to be the ones doing things in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, um, I think... Um this kind of dovetails into a couple other things. One thing is um, it's more common to have the, uh, so when you have the agent, patient, and experiencer roles, the ones that marks that's marked differently is more likely to have the marking. So in an ergative system, you're mo- more likely to mark the ergative and leave the, the absolutive unmarked. You're right. more likely, and the other way, and more... You, and for nominative accusative, you're more likely to mark the accusative and leave nominative on mark. Right. And I think uh, this dovetails into it because if um, the agent is higher agency, then you don't necessarily have to mark it. And it also fits in with um, uh, one of the ergative splits that we talked about uh, way back when on our morphosyntactic alignment ep- episode was an agency split where yep. things that are higher on the agency hierarchy get the nominative marking and lower get the ergative marketing marking. And it's specifically because it's surprising for a high agency um, argument to be the object. While it's right. more surprising yes. for a low yes. agency to, to be the, uh, the uh, agent. Right. Right. It's exactly that. It's, it's, what is most prototypically expected needs no marking. It's only when something weird happens, like, you know, a, a I don't know, a, a book did something to you rather than a person doing something to you. Um, you know, the sandwich ate the man that needs some kind of marking. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of an extreme and artificial example. I was trying to concoct something a little more natural, but yeah, right. It's unusual for things to do things to people. It's much less prototypical. And in those small number of languages that have optional case marking, you only mark the case typically when something unexpected is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, speaking of, uh, are you going to go on with case marking? Uh, I was about to move on, but I forgot that you made the note yes. about the Russian thing, which is cool. Yeah. Um, this, I don't feel like this is with optional case marking related, but um, I 
this the wiki put it really well, so I'll just read what that said. Um, in Russian, the accusative case. Okay, well, first off, before I start that, Russian has masculine, feminine, neuter, and then plural in terms of uh, you know the grammar or the uh, gender, um, and it also has case, obviously. And the, speaking about the accusative markings on nouns, this is what it says: in Russian, the accusative of animate nouns that are either masculine singular or masculine, feminine, or neuter plural coincides with the genitive. So only singular masculine nouns and everything plural goes genitive. While the accusative of inanim- inanimate nouns uh, in the same cases coincides with the nominative. So I think that's just, it's interesting that the form is more represent, is more, um, it looks more like the genitive than the nominative in those cases. So the female, for example, let me see if I can find that example they gave. Because there's a really good example on here. Um, okay. So they give, for example, the animate noun brat, which is brother, in nominative, and the animate, inanimate noun gran, which is crane, like a lifting machinery. And if you're talking about, you know, the brother lifts the crane, it's brat, brat podimar gran. But when the brat is in the accusative case, it goes to genitive. It kind of, it doesn't behave like the lesser animate object. Right. Um, right. So it was interesting. It's a little bit tough if you haven't studied it, but um, it's, I, th- I thought that was really interesting um, when he was when you guys were talking about the um, oh you guys were talking about gender earlier I think and less I don't know why I've lost my train of thought but, um, <laughs> but this is so, but yeah this is yes. exactly a point where grammatical gender is still being pushed around mm-hmm. by semantic animacy and agency yeah mm-hmm. that's exactly I'm glad you yeah. you heard my meaning behind my babbling. <laughs> so i mean it's not like you have to if you want to start thinking about nfc in your conlang you do not have to reproduce the the baroque complexity of navajo's system right there are subtle things you can do with your your uh, you know sort of otherwise kind of standard boring euro clone there's still a lot of fun you can have um yeah with i NMC. kind of want to say that um it's interesting that the these things that we would think of as possibly more animate mm-hmm. would, are uh, are the the accusative it coincides with the genitive and the others it coincides with the nominative because I think maybe that might be sort of uh, an evolved um, way of making them more different because animate nouns of course when you they have to be more heavily more noticeably marked for accusative because there you don't expect them to be accusative. Right. Yeah, well, so the way we learned it dovetails into one. Yeah. When we were learning it, the way we learned it was if it's masculine and animate, it takes genitive instead of taking accusative. Um which is kind of what it says in the second example there. And uh, I never really thought about it, you know, that was in order to mark that, but it was um Yeah, yeah I think that's just but what it's doing. Aren't 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 high animate direct objects in Spanish marked funky? Um the okay. apersonal? Highly, what, apersonal, no, yes, um, a direct object that is animate in Spanish, um, particularly humans, uh, but I think some, like, highly animate animals, like pets, might also get it. You use the, uh, preposition a. Okay, okay. I remember yeah. hearing, there's a similar process, and I forget which corner of the grammar it operates in. In Korean, and it turns out elderly people always use um, 
inanimate marking for robots, but kids are happy to to elevate robots to animates. That's hmm. awesome. I yeah, I wish I could remember the paper on that, but I was anyway. thinking about that earlier. Like when you when a little kid, like a little boy, plays with an action figure or a girl with a doll, or maybe a boy with a doll. But you know, they personalize that item, and you know, you're like, oh, what's he doing? I don't know if that's uh, giving raising the doll animacy or if it's just playing and pretending the doll's a person. In well, in, might... in story time logic, you typically elevate anything talking <laughs> to animacy, even if it isn't normally. <laughs> Once, once yeah. something in a story starts speaking, it is typically elevated to human-level animacy. Well, <laughs> remember, um, in South Korea, there are schools that have robot-like English teachers. They're, they're very crude, sort of basic uh, programming for, for English teaching. But the, the, they, uh, they interact with the kids, and the kids might sort of see them as sort of, uh, <laughs> sort of, something like human because i mean kids and, and well i mean there's there's the, the element of of you know a certain amount of entertainment as well i mean there's all sorts of speculations we can go into here i don't know if we yeah but that's a, a, a con worlding um, question but uh yeah. <laughs> but that's that that goes a little bit further i mean that might be interesting if you develop a, a sci-fi con world that is starting to get personal robots that would be kind of interesting but uh yeah what i I was doing this one in a language I was doing if um kind of based on how sentient something is. So if it's aware of its own existence, like self-aware, it's on one level and things that aren't are another. And then I wasn't sure if they were going to be like that way, if there was some animal spirit versus just some, you know, dog that doesn't know its reflection from a rock. Um, that'd be on a different <laughs> tier. Right. Um, oh, no. um, I think... I want to move on pretty quickly because sure. we're, we're. I only have I only have one last that. item on my list here, in yeah. and you might remember from the noun incorporation episode, high animacy entities are less likely to incorporate in a lot of languages. Okay, that makes sense. Um, right. do, do you think that that falls into place with the uh, pr- with the proper nouns that we were talking about earlier being higher up? Like, does that follow along with that? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I think I think the, the, the noun incorporation is related to the same process in optional case marking. It is more surprising for a high animate thing to be the patient in an experience. Yeah, and which is which is something that's likely to get incorporated. Right, and right. I think also it's just sort of high animacy things are likely to be more important, more topical. Um, I have one other note that I want to say before we end this subject is just sort of to close things out. When you are actually creating your animacy hierarchy, I think it's very important, at least for most of the sort of naturalistic languages that we were talking about, that you try not to think too much in our modern scientific viewpoint. I I I want to say that because I actually kind of made a sort of a a, a mistake in the beginning of the episode when I said taught, gave an example of an animacy hierarchy being humans, animals, plants. That's actually not likely. You're likely yeah. to have things like running water or wind or something mm-hmm. before plants. Yeah. It's it you have to think try to think sort of in a pre-industrial sense of what what people would consider animate and what people would consider more important to. 
Yeah, and now, it's, it's not even necessarily pre-modern. It's it's think metaphorically. The wind yes. is moving. Rocks don't. But you know, if you're depending upon your com world, if you're in a in a world where everything moves, or if you're, I mean, it's totally in in a in a society that was based on something similar to what we have here, or like the uh, any natural language, they have that kind of evolution. But I don't know if it's necessarily strange if you were to think about it in a different sense and try to just build it and well, build I mean, it out like, from there. If you have a con world where plants regularly move, they might actually have higher animacy. They mm-hmm. might actually like be be grouped into animals where like you might also have non moving plants that are grouped in with rocks and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it just just like William said, think of it metaphorically. Don't think about it literally scientifically because Technically, we know that a plant is more animate than running water. It's not just reacting to physical forces. It has some control over itself. But in a more sort of intuitive and metaphorical and sense, the wind is moving. Therefore, yep. we might think of it as more animate. Right, right. Okay, so with that little last little caveat done, why don't we move on to our featured conlang today, hmm. which is interlingua. I normally say hooray, but this is kind of... So I haven't really looked at interlingua before the episode, so I'm try- trying to look at the grammar here. Okay, well, it's important very... to know that I-, I can give a little background because I-, I read some stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Interlingua is very funny because a very wealthy heiress became interested in linguistics and IALs in the 20s. Um, And then she and her husband in 1924 established uh, an organization, the International Auxiliary Language Association. Mm. And their aim was to study a whole bunch of Oxlangs and pick one to use to make certain kinds of scientific literature more widely available. So, for example, the this organization that was created used to be part of a sort of uh, science education foundation. Mm. Um, and their people sat and thought for a while. And then in the 1930s, they decided that they were not going to use an existing one. They were going to make their own, which surprised everyone who had been watching the process. Um, um, I want to say something. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm reading through this grammar. I'm looking at example sentences. I can understand them. Right. So this is the point. So one of their decisions was, are we going to go with a very, very highly naturalistic looking language where the word forms are very much like something from a natural language? Are we going to go something more like um, Edo was a, as... Um, unnatural as they're prepared to go, not even as far as Esperanto. Um, so basically, and remembering their goal, which was to make certain kinds of scientific literature widely available, they decided to make their own language where pretty much the entirety of the vocabulary is in a whole bunch of Romance languages or is otherwise obviously derived from Latin. Uh-huh. And in terms of the grammar, they cut out everything that did not occur in all of their main languages. And that's 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 the reason I can understand everything. Basically, this entire thing looks like Spanish to me. Yep. Right. So here's here's the thing. Keeping in mind their goal, 
I went in before the, the show a few hours ago, I went to find out how many L1 and L2 speakers of English and Romance languages there are. So L1 means, you know, that's your mother tongue. And L2 means for whatever reasons you are bilingual in that language, either you learned in school or, you know, you're, it's a major language of your culture or, what, or of your country or whatever. So I found a page that gave some of the numbers, which are a little bit hard and a little bit squishy to, to really keep track. But it looks like about 1.3 billion people speak English or a Romance language as either their first or second language. That is a huge chunk of the planet. Yes. In terms, in terms of casting a wide linguistic net, I don't know how you could do better. Right. How does that so, compare with some of the other languages? Like Chinese, how many other? Uh, well, less than a billion. Just less than a billion. So even, even you, 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 once you take English and all the romance languages into account, they overwhelm even Mandarin Chinese. Bum, bum, bum. Yes. <laughs> Not by <laughs> as much as you might think, but they still do overwhelm it. Well, it's, uh, think about this. Spanish alone. Uh, is spoken by about 400 million people. So. Right, it's it's massive, and massive, massive. English, English of of course is massive and gigantic, especially and, and most out. and most yes, and not only that, but most of our sort of educated and especially scientific vocabulary is Latin based, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which brings us into the Romance fold pretty solidly. So that was the goal. So yeah, basically the language takes sort of the intersection of a bunch of Romance languages in English, and what comes out is interlingua, which, yeah. as I say in my first note, is awfully dull. Yeah. It really it really just lo- basically looks like a rum line. I can, I can read almost everything mm-hmm. yeah. from... Uh, if, if you have not listened to the podcast before, I speak Spanish fairly fluently, so yep. obviously this is going to be very easy for me to, to read here, and I can I'm read not it too. finding anything in the grammar that's particularly interesting. <laughs> I mean, there are a few bits which they just gave up and grabbed Latin. <laughs> um, so they have the Lord's Prayer and interlingual interlingua on the Wikipedia, and you know they have the, for the you know give us our daily bread. They have Danos Hodie Nostri Pan Quotidian. So that's a little, I don't think there's any Romance language that still says Hodie. Well, um, yeah. for today, but um, huh. um, there are grammars of it, but it's very boring, obviously, because they've taken out everything. There's no inflectional morphology except plurals. There's no agreement process. The verbs are dead simple. Um, um, the derivational processes are all that familiar. I saw as, uh, an interesting thing that I saw as I was paging through was they do allow irregular pronouns for, for irregular plurals for loan words. Which it seems really odd that there are loan words in interlingua that are different from the native uh, vocabulary, but... Um, right, but I mean, why would you make your own word for sushi? (laughs) Everyone calls it sushi. It's sushi. It's an international word. It's just not romance. So you might as well borrow it as sushi. Yes. Um, right. Uh... I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, they've sort of, like I said, they've taken the intersection of a bunch of uh, romance languages with various... And, and anything that doesn't also occur in English grammar was mercilessly chucked out, except for um, they still use, um, to a certain degree, they still use reflexive verbs to play transitivity tricks. Okay. Um, and even that's not as 
well-defined as I might care for. Reading the grammars are very unsatisfying because it's hard for me to see what's going on. Hmm. <laughs> it looks like it just kind of took like basically a, like a big cauldron and poured in English, Spanish, and Portuguese, and French, and a little bit Italian. of everything, and, every, and everything that floated to the top, they just chucked out. Like, yep. I think I was reading on somewhere in the wiki, and it said that they had, one said four, and one said seven control languages. And if it didn't occur in X amount of those languages, it was next. Yep. And then there was okay, uh, so German and German and Russian were the um, secondary that could substitute in, at, you know, if they needed to. What were you going to say, George? Yeah. One thing I might um, say is one weirdness that one one interesting bit that crept in through the Romance languages, I guess, comes in with the pronouns. And there's masculine, feminine, neuter pronouns. And in subject and object, they're different. Ile, ila, ilo, le, la, lo. Uh, and, and, uh, add S for the, the plurals, of course. And then the reflexive for all of those is se. Mm-hmm. The possessive, you have su for, uh, the, 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 the possessives, you have su or sue for, uh, singular and lor or lore for possessive. So basically, that stuff that is imported, I think, m- mainly from Spanish. I know Spanish has uh, se and su for... Yeah, yeah, uh, person, French. French person. French is perfectly identical as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's sort of... it's Anything that has any interest uh, in this language is also in Romance languages, and Romance languages are far more interesting than this. <laughs> they chucked uh, gender too, grammatical they gender. gender. They did check grammatical gender, which again, that sort of makes sense given their goal, right? This is supposed to be an international auxiliary language. Um, uh, another thing it does that's straight from the Romance languages and not from English is, you know, pronoun, verb, pronoun in English, like I surprised them, is pronoun, pronoun, verb, like it is in Romance languages. So one of the examples I have here is Yo les surprendeva, I surprised them. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that sort of Not word order is, is, is very, um, romance. And then we have, again, reflexive used for things that are kind of indef, um, agentless passives or anti-causatives. I apologize for using the phrase anti-causative. If you really mm-hmm. care, you can look it up. But, um, the phrase, the book sell well, or the book sells well is, este libro se vende molto ben. So it sells yeah. itself well. Yeah, I mean, very standard sort of stuff. The thing that's puzzling to me is the official publication about the language is very sparse about this. Reflexives are often well, puzzling the language for people. So this this is this this is normal for an IAL, I think, especially uh, one of these. I mean, it's not the one of the earliest IALs, but it's fairly early, nineteen thirties. You said it's not that uh, early. I think. Yeah, it's not, it's, I mean, Esperanto was, what, mid-1800s, but... 1887, um, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, it's later, sorry. I don't know my history very well. Um, But um, we need to have a conlanging history course. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, where was I going with that? I, uh, but, I mean, from a an IAL, especially from this era, I'm not surprised that some parts of the grammar are not really fleshed out or anything. I mean, if you go back uh, to, you know, 1880s and go to Esperanto, Esperanto grammar at the first, at, 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 uh, when, when Zamenhof created it was not very fleshed out. 
was yeah. Although his publication was accompanied by large chunks of translation, which helped him find things. I mean, I should mention that large multi-volume publications were published in interlingua. Scientific publications were published in interlingua until the 1970s. Uh huh. Um, so people were, for a while at least, using it quite a lot. Um, and I was sort of surprised not to see a little more detail about some of these things. Yeah. I, I mean, and this may be, this may be a part of the material that we have access to, but it, it just does seem like there's a lot of stuff around the edges that are not as designed as well as you might like. As George has observed, if once you know a romance language, reading interlingua is dead simple. Yeah. <laughs> Producing the same effect might take a lot more work. Yeah, I'm like, I look at this and I say, like, Proque yo ha un terrible mal de capite il es necessary que yo va al doctor. And it's because I have a terrible headache, it is necessary that I go to a doctor. I got most of that reading the interlingua. I, I probably am not entirely, I'm not entirely certain on pronunciation stuff, but that's just simple. That's, that's just basic. But I, I, when I read it, I can get most of what it is. And that's, romance languages are very, mostly very similar. So, I mean, like, if I read some Italian or Portuguese, I can get, um, I think I can read interlingua better than I can read, like, Italian or Portuguese, actually. Yeah. But, yep. um, and every, uh, once again, I, everyone forgets the poor Romanians. And Romanian. Well, <laughs> I, I, I know, I've never tried Romanian. I know that French, I just can't, I can't do French nearly as well. Mm. I guess because the, all the Germanic, um, I probably couldn't do Romanian very well because it's got a bunch of Slavic influence, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. But, um, I think I, Interlingua, I guess if you're into IALs, it's something that you might want to take a look at. Have we said what IAL stands for? International um, Auxiliary Language, like a, any international language, auxiliary. Yeah, yeah. We we the 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 other term for it in the conlang community is auxlang. So yeah. if you're into auxlangs or IALs, then sure, take a look at it. I think if you're looking for anything interesting at all, learn a Romance language instead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, again, remember, right, this is an interesting example of creating a language for a particular goal, right? Yes. The interlingual people are not really trying to create an IAL in the same sense that the Esperantists are, or even the lingua franca nova people are. This is very much about producing certain kinds of reference works they want to be available to as many people as possible by virtue of them knowing or being familiar with languages of a certain mm -hmm. kind. Yeah, and that for that purpose, it is an interesting thing because I mean, I so guess the fact we... that, that George and I and I, I guess I don't know, Mike, do you know Spanish? Yes, I got yeah, my bachelor's is in it. All right, so all of us, and I expect the same is true of anyone who knows you know much more you know French or Italian or whatever, can very easily read this language very very easily. So mm -hmm. in that sense, it's clever. Because I assume yeah, some decision-making went into it. It's just um, from the standpoint of most of us here who are artistic conlangers, it's kind of boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and that's that's the thing I wanted to say. I'm, and it's not perfectly easy to read. There's there's little bits like uh, Rubé is red instead of blonde, 
for hair color, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have to learn a few little things if you were going to actually use this language. But um, it does very close. It it is very close to achieving its goal. Um, And um, I think mainly it's I mainly are are sort of uh, lack of enthusiasm is more it's it's a bit to the point of we are all art langers and we all are interested in making naturalistic conlangs so whenever we get into one of these IELs or or oxlangs we're not really in our our sort of wheelhouse and it's <laughs> kind of hard for us to get into it and frankly i think generally the most of the time the the idea behind an IEL is sort of misguided. It's you know it's a beautiful idea to to create a a culturally neutral. In, in the case of Esperanto, it was creating a cultural culturally neutral lingua franca, but it's never going to happen. And this, I mean, it's great. You know, I can read it. It achieved its goal of being sort of easily learned by. English speakers and and especially Romance speakers. I think if yeah. you, it's mainly if you speak a Romance language, you can learn this language really easily, and you can almost not even bother with learning it. You just have to learn some new vocabulary terms. But um, the fact that it never really caught on—that's just normal for Oxlangs. That's just they don't without any any. Uh, strong culture behind it without any economic incentive behind it they just never go anywhere um that's a philosophical argument we can have on another show <laughs> yes um from that i mean it's really important is all of these things you've been saying are stuff that the interlingual people appear to have deliberately stayed away from right <laughs> remember what their point is is to make certain kinds of works widely available to the widest number of people mm-hmm. and for that interlinguists seem successful even if the results are not perhaps as inspiring as they could be to art langers. Yeah. Right. And, you know, so it, it's good for its goal, but for the reasons that we usually get our, um, our, uh, our, uh, material for the podcast, it's not as fun. This is weird. Just uh-huh. one, one thing to point out before I go, before we move on. So I just got to the numbers, and for numbers more than a million, apparently they went to go with the mil- the the system of million, 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 billion, and that. But instead of doing like you know bi- million, billion, million, million, billion, million, billion, they go with it's it's a thousand is mille, and then million, milliardo, billion. Billiardo, trillion, and it goes on like that. So That's apparently, just... some is it French that has the ard, the ardo, ard, the uh, numbers. I forget. Whatever. It's it. a, that's a funny. Well, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's funny to see now because I think almost everybody is just going. I, I think everybody in the European sphere is going with the million billion system now. I mean, you still see million million mm-hmm. in. Uh, British English stuff and some Spanish stuff that have um, millones y millones or something like that. But uh, 
million millionis or something like that. But uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I don't I, know. This. <laughs> We sort of picked this language at panic. We're like, we need a con language. Let's do it. I'm like, well, okay. And then we finally start but looking at like, But I think oh, I'm it shows... a thousand million. No. Thousand I mean, million, it's... Not million, right? <laughs> He's still going yeah. out with millions. Um, Sorry. But... I'm, I'm just going crazy. Okay. It's okay. I think that, you know, taking a look at the, what this, that, accepting this for something completely different from an art line that we're doing. I mean, like you mentioned, they did do a good job where it's understandable by English speakers and um, well, I mean, at least people who have who have a knowledge of Spanish, yeah. and um, I think if you're looking for something that maybe is like a, a blending of those of the source languages, it might be interesting to look at how it, like what it most resembles and how that is. But I don't know if they really did that because they were looking to just use it. I don't know if they really went into a deep dissection or vivisection of the language, so to speak. Yeah, it'd be interesting okay. to see a dictionary to see how much semantic detail they go into for any given word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the it's hard this. for me to, to see. It. I, with Esperanto, there are a lot of really gigantic, great free references available online. Mm-hmm. But it's harder. it has been harder for me to find some of that information online for Interlingua. And I did look. Yeah. The yeah. creators of this, um, were they, were they, what was their L1? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know who was all involved in the creation. They had uh, the committee to do the initial look was mostly American. Uh, oh, and one Danish linguist. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, the people who made it, I'm guessing were mostly, I mean, mostly it was the British and Americans who really pushed interlingua. And then it sort of shifted over to Europe and South America more in the eighties and seventies uh, and eighties, as I recall. Yeah, that oh, Alice yeah. Vanderbilt Morris. She was the uh, she. She she was just the money. Yeah, but she was American. She was. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, she was a Vanderbilt. Yeah. So, well, so, yes, of course. Okay. Um. By the way, what I was saying there. Nobody says million million, but there's people who say thousand million or mil millions and stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's co- totally beyond the point. I think. We can probably wrap up our discussion of this. We've said about all we're going to say, probably. Uh, yeah. Unless one of you guys has some other point. But I'm going to say, but I'm saying that I'm going to say that this language, it comes, it's very good at its specific goal. It's not necessarily something that we recommend for the purposes we usually share our, share conlangs for, which is <laughs> right. inspiration and stuff. It's not very inspirational. It seems more um, kind of like like it's just what happens. It's not like like you would. I don't think someone would have to necessarily learn this. It almost seems like this is what happens, like the uh, like a pigeon or a creole that comes out of pe- these langer, these people who being stuck in a room, and this is the blend that comes out. Except for the yeah. peculiar tendency of randomly importing uh, Latin words unprocessed. Hmm. Um, except for that, I think that's true, and I think it's probably much harder to learn to produce the language correctly. Yeah, than it is to simply read it passively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's true of any Romance language. You you know, yeah, it's probably when, true. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't speak Italian, but I could get the gist of a paragraph of Italian by reading it. Um, but I think we've talked enough about how much we hate this language. So anyone hates it? I want to say hate. 
It's just I boring. Just it's, it's not exactly. I'm it's just. Not, I, 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 it, that was a t- tongue-in-cheek comment. Yeah. Don't okay. take that okay. seriously. But <laughs> no, talking but... too much, too much about how much this, how uh, about this language. Why don't we move on uh, to our feedback? Any objections? Nope. All no. right. So we have two new five-star reviews. And they're kind of long, but I'm going to read them anyway because I read all the five five star reviews. So we have. (laughs) I got a a deal that I made with our listeners, so I have to do it. So we have one from a guy who calls himself Panglot. And it says This podcast is an excellent resource not only for people interested in conlang, but languages and linguistics in general. Each episode is full of wonderful information about the immense diversity and marvelous workings of natural languages worldwide, as well as interesting perspectives on constructed languages. The focus here is on artistic languages, such as those found in fantasy and science fiction literature and television, and as an exercise in themselves, but there is some coverage of engineered languages as well as a a little bit on auxiliary languages. Episodes will appeal to (laughs) listeners of varying levels of linguistic knowledge and conlanging skill, although the discussions are often conducted at a very high level. Very experienced conlangers might find episodes that challenge them to fill out their languages, such as episodes on kinship systems and idiophones, while other episodes cover more basic or general topics. They've given me plenty of ideas to chew on and things to add to my own language sketches. Conlangery is one of the few podcasts that I've listened to and that I've found world worthwhile to go back and listen to the old episodes again. George, Bianca, William, and Mike, thanks for the first year, and I hope you give us another at least. So <laughs> that was a very, very good advertisement for our show. That's I, I awesome. think everybody who's lis- actually listening to this knows everything that he said, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fabulous. This is very, Hooray. very good. I, I hit the, uh, the, uh, the, the, was this review helpful? Yes, because, well, I do <laughs> yes, that for most of them, but, but it, it is helpful. Um, and then the, the next one is Smokin' Hot by Robert Murphy. He says, I've been teetering on the edge of this geeky habit, Conlang, for years now, and these guys pushed me over the edge. Their devotion to producing something substantial every week is remarkable. The show features a long initial section about some feature of linguistics, followed by a featured constructed language, conlang, and finally some feedback. These The three hosts are very different, and you get all the angles covered. I highly except, rem- yeah, except- recommend... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, there's this small spelling error which I love and is delightful. You get all the angels covered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I, I, the, I'll, I'll I'll continue on. I highly recommend going back all the way back to the beginning and listening to every episode. There is gold in every one, even before they figured out editing and sound quality <laughs> issues. <laughs> this stuff is at a beginning level. Wait, Since no, they are all, that's not what he says. Is not at a beginning level, sorry. Since they are all linguists in training. Actually, William is not really a linguist in training. He's, he's just an amateur linguist. Yeah. Yes. Uh, therefore, if you were unwilling to go read after slash during an episode, uh, you will be screwed. However, no one is <laughs> smart enough 
to be interested in this stuff should have a, have that problem. The rabbit trails are short, the conversation is enlightening, and the release schedule cannot be beat. The stuff, oh. this stuff would cost you real money and time in books, which you should get anyway, but it's free on the internet. Subscribe today. I'm glad that I, I, I like the fact that he, he actually started conlanging because of us. Yay. One I of mean, us. One of us. We accept him. One of us. <laughs> well, I mean, I, he was, he was interested in it beforehand, but we, we kind of pushed him in the right direction. Um, and, uh, I want to add as an addendum, he actually, Robert Murphy actually sent us an email and mm-hmm. it's a very short email. He said, uh, first of all, let me say that what a great show. I just posted a five star review uh, on iTunes. I started three weeks ago and listened to every episode. That's a lot of uh, podcasts. Yes. I wanted to bring to your attention the unwritten rule in podcasting not to go beyond 82 minutes. No one can burn your episode onto a CD and give give it to a friend if it's longer than that. Let me be sure to emphasize the coolness of what you do. Uh, and uh, another interesting spelling error, he said, the coolness of what yo do. <laughs> but anyway. Um, wow. 82 well, minutes, which we've well, blown through again this time. But Yeah. yeah well, well, I don't know. Uh, I'll have to see what happens after I isolate well, our stuff and... Uh, and um, truncate silence and everything, but we're currently only ten minutes over by my count. Okay. Um, but uh-huh. as far as mentioning the um, that we conduct our discussions at a much more, I guess, linguistically educated level, um, I've thought about that before, and I think that sometimes it's tough to talk about these things without knowing some of the terms. I don't know if it'd be good if we had like a like I don't know like a glossary. But he's right. You do if you don't know the the lingo of of conlanging. It may be difficult to hang with some of this, but uh, yeah. whoever does, hooray and good. See, good, that good was on that was what I was hoping. Uh, deconstructed constructed would construction would turn into would be like conlangery for beginners. But I mean, they their blog is still running, I think. But they yeah. they produced one episode of their podcast and didn't didn't do anything. I guess so, like I don't know what's going on. There. Some, I mean, since Mike has come on, I think we pay more attention to trying to define things if. Something weird gets mentioned. Well, I was going to say, I usually try to keep that in mind without... Yeah. Also, I don't want the listeners who do know the terms, I don't want them to feel like it's being bogged down by explanations that they've had five episodes in a row, because we do use some terms regularly. Yeah. But I do try to, if we do something new like IAL, or if we use like a split ergative or something yeah. that maybe I do know what it is, I play the, I guess, non non-linguist advocate and try to say, oh, well, what does that mean for those people who don't know? So. But as, as we noticed... Noticed, noted. Speaking a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. anyone who's been conlanging for more than I don't know a year, yeah, is getting a pretty substantial linguistics education just by hanging out with other conlangers. And with the internet yes. as it is nowadays, you can find mm-hmm. resources, you know, abound all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, we're we, always happy to answer questions. Yeah, yes. yeah. You, you, if um. In fact, I think in our next episode we're gonna we might handle uh, a a question from somebody that's that's uh, sort of uh, a newer person. But uh, I think it is a very interesting. Um, I it I think I feel like maybe it would behoove somebody to for to uh, behoove us to have somebody uh, create sort of uh, a beginning conlangers glossary of terms 
not just for linguistic terms, but for conlanging terms like artlang, oxlang, all that kind uh, of stuff. I think the the conlang elfac approaches some of that. Mm-hmm. And I think if you Google any of them, or not to promote Google, but if you use a search engine to find any of them. I wonder if we should do an episode just for like beginning lang- conlangers that listen to us on uh, terms that we use in the conlanging community, not necessarily linguistic terms, because that would take several episodes, and we yes, kind of define them when we cover them anyway. Right? Yeah, I think um, that might. Yeah, we can think about that. I mean, we can brainstorm and see if we can come up with anything. But thanks for the letters and the yes, reviews. thank you so much for the scars. That's nice. Constructive criticism. <laughs> good scars. What? <laughs> good. To William know that... just wants people to send him cigars. <laughs> what? No. Certainly. He'd rather he'd rather them send him figs. I think. Figs and, and banjos. Figs and uh, banjos. I'll take I have to banjos. sell cigars, but I don't like... I don't have any cigars. Blah. So, <clears throat> not, uh, that this isn't, anyway. not that this isn't related to conlang, but <laughs> the show's still going on. Yes. Uh, we, really, we really should wrap up. Uh, yes. Because we are probably going to be past uh, 182 minutes. We should make a goal of that. Make a goal to hit 182. Or no, just 82, 82 not 182. 82. Sorry, 82. Sorry, 82. <laughs> Sorry, 182 is way too far. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we're over uh, uh, 82 minutes, so why don't we go? Uh, it is, um, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? Nope, but tell us what sort of music you can't to if you do. Mm. Sure. Um, I actually um, had, well, Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what's your wisdom, Mike? Well, no, I was thinking about this one um, earlier in the episode, but I wanted to hold it till the end. Um, but I was thinking if you tr- if you if you do something that's weird or breaks some of the rules that we've seen, like the, the like a hierarchy, or if you do something that's unusual, I think it'd be. I don't think I think the typical reaction would be, "Oh, that's interesting," rather than "You're wrong" or "That's stupid." I don't think like whenever I see something in a that either quote-unquote, violates an animacy or, or not animacy, violates a, uh, a hierarchy, or if it's just something that's contrary to what I would expect to be a natural instinct, I might comment that it's hard to learn, but I wouldn't say it's wrong, so I'd say, you know, feel free to explore and don't be afraid and sally forth into conlanging bravely, all that. So, yes, that's my, yeah, com- I my think, two cents. I think the gist is of what you're saying is don't af- be afraid of introducing some weirdness just because we say it's not common you know yeah, or if you like if if you want to do something that's really weird like do an like an ergative split that's opposite of what always happens then you know you can try it it's not and, like a big deal as long as as long as you know that's what you're doing and there have been times, you know that you're doing something unnatural um there have been times that I've looked at, I've been looking at other languages and been like, oh, they took that from my con line. I mean, I didn't really think that, but I, I knew it. I tried something different and it turned out to exist in a world language. So, yeah. Feel free to but explain. But anyway, it. we really need to end the episode. <laughs> so, that's all. Not that's because all of the 82 minutes thing. I, I just like to, I, I actually, uh, I, 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 it's, it's good to have that information, but I don't know how far we'll follow it. But anyway, I'm just going to say, Happy Conlanging. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured Conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. 
You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. It is my hope, it is my hope, my desperate hope, just for a change of pace, that we'll have an episode that's under an hour long. Ooh, should we aim for that for this one? (laughs) (laughs) There's not a whole lot to say about interlingua, that's for damn sure. I like your first note, William. So boring. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of worry that if I do uh, the algorithmic noise removal, that it will make everybody sound like they're on tin can phones. Uh. Today's episode of Con Langry brought to you from the treehouse. <laughs> Wisconsin finally sent me my financial aid reward. And? Uh, it'll cover my tuition. It's basically just a loan and a work study. Okay. And the work study is like $2,000. I applied through student housing for the graduate apartments, but I'm way... I I emailed them recently, and they said I'm way far down on the waiting list because I'm not in any of the priority groups. Right. You are Um, not a married Asian guy with kids. I'm going to register to vote in Wisconsin, so you need to inform me on all the political situation. (laughs) (laughs) I, well, I often rely on my brother for that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. If you're if you're here long enough, you'll get a chance to vote for Senate for my favorite lesbian. Well, she's not a senator yet. She's only been a, oh. a representative. Um, representative. Okay. I mean, we do have Senator Herb Cole, who everyone calls the Dairy Queen. That oh, will yeah. be hard. The rental cycle in Madison is very weird. Oh yeah. It is. Yes. August 15 is the big day. In Madison, people who live here call it Hippie Christmas. <laughs> what, because, because rather than move things like perfectly good furniture, people just move it to the side to be carried away by the garbage. Illicit, illicit, You illicit. guys can talk about something illicit and I won't listen. <laughs> oh, you don't want to take part in the conversation? Uh, I, I just think... Developed by a committee. Um, I just, I'm, I'm worried about what you guys would talk about Ill- illicitly. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I just turned on. I, I just booted up iTunes and the instance starts playing. The what? It's a podcast oh. about World of Warcraft. Oh, I used to play that. I Which I don't play, by the way. I don't know why okay. I still have that iTunes feed. It's okay. I won't judge. You can, you know, sometimes people just get curious and they look at things and. It's okay. <laughs>
<laughs> well, I used to play. I used to play WoW, but I got incredibly bored with it and have not played it for months. So. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. How far right. we'll follow it? <laughs> so I've been listening to podcasts forever. I have yeah. never heard this eighty-two minute rule, and it. And I listen to a few podcasts that go I'm over two hours pretty regularly. So, Holy cats! So we're not the only so, ones who talk a lot. Um. Uh. Yeah. Um. This week in tech goes okay. over two hours all the time. That makes sense. You, I think do you I remember heard that, that episode, William. <laughs> we've done so many. I really don't. It's so weird to think we've been doing this as long as we have. That that somebody thinks that it's worthwhile to listen to the first episodes because I'm like, no, don't listen to the first six episodes. <laughs> the audio quality is terrible. <laughs>